Good morning. Uh, Chuck is in need of some rest, and I'm happy to have this opportunity to administer the word to us this morning. Um, I've got good news and bad news. Which do you want to hear first? Bad news. Bad news. Okay. Any good newsers? Uh, good newsers? Whether you want the good news or the bad news first might say something about you. <clears throat> but we've all heard that formula. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, two elderly men, we'll call them uh, Harold and Miles. Those sound like old school names. These guys, they'd been friends all their life. They'd grown up together, and they just loved baseball. Well, Miles got sick, and when it became apparent that he would not recover, uh, Edgar asked him on his deathbed for a favor. He said, Miles, I want you to figure out a way to let me know whether there's baseball in heaven. I want to know, while I'm still living, whether there's baseball, whether there's baseball up there. And so Miles promised he'd do his best. And soon thereafter, Miles passed away. A few days later, Edgar was awakened at midnight to a voice calling out, Edgar, Edgar, who is it, says Edgar, it's Miles, I made the trip from heaven to deliver a message, listen Edgar, I got some good news and some bad news, what do you want first, give me the good news, says Edgar, Miles says there's baseball, there's baseball in heaven and what's more, the sun's always out, our friends are all there, our bodies are young and healthy again, it's a ball. Okay, so what's the bad news, says Edgar. Well, you're pitching Tuesday. <laughs> True that. Good news, delivered in the context of eh, bad news. But then, of course, it's not such bad news if you have ears to hear it, stomachs to receive it. The good news outweighs the bad news. But it must be digested in light of the bad news. I offer that little chuckle uh, this morning to illustrate that in John 8, our passage was John 8, if you want to look it up. Uh, we read from th verses 31 through 47. There Jesus is delivering some good news to his hearers, but they must receive that good news in light of the bad news that it necessitates. The gospel, the good news of salvation in and through Jesus only makes sense if we have ears to hear the bad news. And this morning I want to shine the spotlight some on that bad news, which makes the gospel good news. And that's really because our text, those verses 31 through 47 of John 8, they recount a very, uh, we might call it a terse exchange between Jesus and his followers. Jesus was delivering some hard words, and I want us to take those words to heart this morning. But I don't want to lose sight of the good news in the process. In fact, I think it's worth reminding ourselves that the very first words that Jesus spoke in this passage are actually this wonderful, beautiful invitation to his hearers, an invitation to deliverance. You may remember that the context for this chapter, we've been in it for a couple of weeks now, is that Jesus is speaking at the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a Jewish festival that recounted the deliverance of Israel out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt. And so they're celebrating their deliverance from slavery, and here Jesus presents himself as a deliverer, as a kind of Moses. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my followers, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
So he's promising them something really liberating. But his hearers only have ears to hear the bad news, and they take offense here. Did you just insinuate that we're slaves? They protest, saying, we're, we're not slaves, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. That's pretty silly. It's a silly statement for them to make, isn't it? Because actually, they've been slaves most of their existence. They were, of course, enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, something they're commemorating on this occasion, how quickly they forget. But then, not only that, but later in their history as a nation, when they became disobedient, God sent them into exile. He sent first the northern kingdom into exile to the Assyrians, and later on the southern kingdom in exile to the Babylonians, who then gave way to the Persians who ruled over Israel. And then when they returned to their land, when they were finally given that little bit of freedom, they had to struggle against the rule and the oversight of the Seleucids in the north, the Ptolemies in the south, these Macedonian kingdoms that ruled from Syria and Egypt. And now they're under the rule of Rome. <laughs> when have they been free? Most of their existence, they've been beholden to another. They react. They demonstrate right off the bat that they don't really have a disposition to hear these difficult words. But of course, Jesus is not speaking of that kind of slavery, is he? Here he's referring to spiritual slavery, which goes beyond them. It, go, it comes to us as well. Which is why he answers their challenge with everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Let those words sink in for a moment. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. I don't think we are naturally inclined to think of sin as something so desperate that it actually enslaves us. Most people think of sin as something they just occasionally lapse into. I think we even just heard that VBS song, not to critique the VBS songs, you know, hey, terrific children's song. But sometimes I make wrong choices, right? And you forgive me? Well, sin is deeper than just wrong choices. Sin is not something we simply lapse into. We are not otherwise basically decent people. Some of you know, some others of you don't, that I serve um, as the Dean of Student Life at Providence, where Chuck is adjunct. Uh, Providence is a reformed Christian college, which means, among other things, that we hold a very, I would say, a very deep, a very serious view of sin. We assent to this notion of total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean that you are uh, as bad as you can be. As the dean of students, I know that people can be worse. <laughs> but rather that we are as bad off as we can be. What Jesus says here is that apart from him, we are slaves to sin. But this view is really countercultural to American spirituality. You know, before I moved over to uh, student life, I worked in admissions. And I will tell you, unfortunately, sadly... It's not atypical of Christian students, that is, students who grow up in the church or students that come from Christian schools nowadays, when they're asked to articulate their faith in Jesus, to fail to even mention sin. We're not comfortable with the idea of sin. But of course, if sin is not appreciated for what it is, then the priority of grace is obscured, as will ultimately be the, the 
notion of justification by faith through the Son. You see, the gospel's a package. The bad news goes with the good news. Sin is a starting point for any true apprehension of the gospel. So slavery to sin, total depravity, whatever you want to call it, is something we must not water down. Thinking of sin as as simply a need for self-improvement, that's a worldly notion. It's not a Christian one. I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, the Foundation for a Better Life. I'm not sure if they're around or if they maybe rebranded themselves and took another name. But a few years ago when I had cable, I used to see their television ads pop up. Maybe you remember them. They would usually display some kind of random act of kindness, uh, which was followed by a tagline like, Encouragement. Pass it on. And the ad would just end there abruptly, and I, I, would, I was perplexed. I would wait for the helpful Honda people to come out and show that they're actually selling cars or something. You know, that, but I could find no demonstration of an ulterior motive. And then I thought, well, maybe it's a, a, a cult running some ads for PR, you know, but it wasn't a cult. So I, I researched this foundation for a better life, and this is what I found. They're philanthropists, rich men and women who simply are paying out of pocket for these positive messages. Can hardly find fault with that, right? Pass around some positivity. Except that I don't think they really seem to understand the human predicament. You see, on their website, it says that they believe that people are basically good and sometimes simply need a reminder of that. Think about that. That is radically different to what Jesus says here, you're slaves to sin. Paul echoes this truth, this notion of slavery in his letter to the Romans. He says we're obligated to the sinful nature if we're without Christ. We're we're slaves one way or the other. He says we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness. There's no middle ground. In the words of Bob Dylan, you may serve the devil or you may serve the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. We like to think that we're free, but we're not really free. Again, for Western minds that hold tightly to this idea of independence, not only independence, but a free will, this may be a disturbing adjustment for us. Actually, it's been a correction for many a generation. The great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, he asserted that the recognition of slavery to sin, that is the beginning of salvation. Luther knew from experience what it felt like to be a slave to sin before he was redeemed. As a monk, Luther lived this life of austerity. He was trying to please God through his efforts, but he could find no peace with God. He said that he even hated God. He hated God much as these Jews hated Jesus. Until the righteousness of God apart from the law was revealed to him, a righteousness apprehended by faith in Jesus who he understood was his righteousness. In time, Luther came to understand that Jesus and the whole of God's word teaches that apart from redemption in Christ, we're not free. We're slaves to sin. And apprehending this liberal truth, he wrote a work entitled The Bondage of the Will, which was actually a response to publications by another very influential theologian of his day, Erasmus, who preached an alternative gospel of free will that really leaned more on reason than it did on God's revelation. Luther believed that Erasmus was compromising the gospel, and I I believe that too. 
Luther said, if a man's lost his freedom, if he's forced to serve sin and cannot will good, what conclusion can more justly be drawn concerning him than that he sins and wills evil necessarily? Another way of putting that would be to say that we sin because we are sinners. It's who we are. The Apostle Paul had a very similar conversion route to Luther's. Granted, the Apostle Paul was met by Jesus. Luther didn't have that um, drama. But the Apostle Paul, too, originally sought a righteousness of his own, apart from regeneration through the Spirit of Christ. He likewise described his zealous but unregenerative life as one sold under sin. He said that he desired to do what was right, but he didn't have the ability to carry it out. And Paul, like Luther, was an upright man. He was zealous for the law is how he describes himself. You see, Jesus calls good people slaves to sin. Jesus is not here addressing a bunch of degenerates. He's speaking to upstanding Jews, even Pharisees. I don't think we should make the mistake of thinking that Pharisee always just simply equates with sinner. Pharisees were upright. They were moral people, but they had a huge blind spot. They thought that they were basically good and basically free. And this inevitably made them very self-righteous. Not recognizing that we are slaves to sin without Jesus, that will diminish grace. It diminishes the glory of God in our salvation. It will diminish the good news if we don't first receive the bad news. Sinners need to be set free because we're slaves to sin. But before we get the good news, Jesus has some more bad news to announce to us. He goes on to tell his hearers that they are also sons of Satan. If you saw this when it was first read, man, it sounds like Jesus is full of hate speech, doesn't it? But this is actually very loving for him to tell them the truth. Let's look at this exchange that Jesus has with the Jews. Jesus initiates the exchange by essentially asserting what he uh, does throughout the book of John, that he's not speaking on, of his own accord, but he's speaking the words the Father gave him to speak, that he represents the Father, to which they re retort, well, Abraham is our father. Now, Jesus recognizes that they are indeed the offspring of Abraham, but he refuses to go so far as to call them Abraham's children, and I think this must really get under their skin because they then take a shot at him get very personal. Chuck mentioned this last week, but when they say we were not born of sexual immorality, I think that was probably meant as a dig at Jesus whose father may have been in question. I'm not sure how the story of a virgin birth would have been received by the crowds. So they've gotten personal. And now they up the ante even more. They say not only is, you know, not only is Abraham our father, God is our true father. And Jesus here plainly replies to them, you are of your father, the devil. Now, to be fair, to put this in context, Jesus is addressing people who are beginning to hate him, who are having murderous thoughts about him, who in just a few moments will pick up stones to kill him. So it's not a stretch, I think, for Jesus to call them out as murderous sons of Satan who are there to do his bidding. But again, there is a, ra there, there is a radically bad news truth for us to apprehend here, which is that there's really no middle ground of neutrality between God and Satan. 
Everyone will serve one master or the other, right? Just as we're either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness, so we either have God as our father or we will be considered the devil's children. Again, this truth is echoed elsewhere in the writings of Paul. Paul, who uh, wrote so affectionately to the Ephesians, reminded them that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were, you were dead. You were slaves, powerless. He goes on to say, you followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Again, today, generally speaking, most people are very optimistic and positive about their, their standing before God. Our start, starting point is often, well, you know, God loves us. God is love, and he loves us, and he's everyone's heavenly father, isn't he? But in order to fully appreciate the gospel, we must recognize the bad news that in our natural state, in our sin, we were actually enemies with God and had to be reconciled to him through his son. That's biblical language. No one should ever presume that God is their father. Jesus makes the case to these Jews that they cannot claim God as their father simply because they are Jews. Even though God said to their nation, I will be a father to them. Nationality, heritage, ethnicity count for nothing. You know, today there seemed to be an, uh, a resurgent interest in defining who we are according to nationality. This seems to be uh, equally true, I think, nationality, heritage, or ethnicity, equally true on the right as it is on the left. And I think this is a very dangerous impediment to the gospel. On the right, there is a surging nationalism at play in various corners. And with it comes the danger of elevating nationality or heritage as a badge of pride, as our true identity. You know, I'll, I'll confess something to you regarding this World Cup that's being played out. I think at this point maybe it's been played out, right? It brought me some sense of satisfaction to see the final four teams, the semifinal teams, be England, France, Belgium, and Croatia, four European teams. I was discussing this with my daughter, Avery. My kids, they've become very curious about um, me watching a little bit of the World Cup here and there, who daddy's rooting for and why he's rooting for him. And she figured out that these were all European nations on her own. And so she asked me, is, is that why you're happy they won? Busted. Is that not some kind of unhealthy ethnocentrism? I get it. Tribalism is certainly a part of life for all of us to some degree, right? But could ethnicity point to an identity outside of Christ? It certainly could. I know there's a lot of people today, it, it seems to be all the rage to sign up to do your DNA test, right, through Ancestry.com. My mom just did it. It was a gift to her. It, it, what, do they, what do they offer the promise of? The promise of helping you to find out who you really are, right? Look, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that it's sinful to, to do one of those tests. Maybe you're, you don't know where you come from and you have a curiosity about that. But I think we should be careful. Ethnic pride can be a stumbling block to appreciating God's mercy or clinging solely to Christ as our new identity. 
And if the right's guilty of some unhealthy resurgence of nationalism, on the left, let me call out the identity politics, which seem to obsess over whether you're a woman or a, a black man or a person of color or a, a white Protestant or gay or straight, and suggest that you can be summed up by this identity. Listen, it doesn't matter who you are in terms of nationality or ethnicity. No one has a claim on God as father without Christ. Again, to this uh, mixed church, the Roman church, a, a mixed church of Jews and Gentiles, Paul says this. He says, God has bound all men over to disobedience that he might have mercy on them all. By the way, that's not some kind of universalistic language or message as if to say God has mercy on everyone, that he's everyone's father. Rather, Paul was making the argument of whether a Jew has any claim on God that a Gentile does not enjoy. And at the end of the day, his conclusion is that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And that we're all justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's found in Christ Jesus. God has consigned all men, all nations over to disobedience, that he might have mercy on them all. What matters is how God gives his mercy. God will have the glory in salvation. Friends, we have to digest the bad news in order to receive the good news. Apart from Christ, we're slaves to sin and frankly, sons of Satan. Is there any good news coming, preacher? <laughs> It's coming, but uh, permit me this final interlude. If you're tempted this morning to say to yourself, well, this all seems really harsh. This is going a little too far. Do we have to be so dramatic and drastic? Because, I mean, Jesus was speaking to people who wanted to kill him. So can't we just chalk it up to him labeling those people as slaves and those people as the devil's sons? Here's why I don't think that will fly. The last verse from last week's reading was, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And the first verse of our reading this morning added, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples. If you abide in my word. See, Jesus has bad news for so-called Believers, I have to put that in quotation marks. I say believers in quotes because they're not his true disciples. Jesus doesn't lose any that the Father gives him. They're currently following Jesus, yes, but John consistently presents these crowds as fickle, here today, gone tomorrow. They like what they can get out of Jesus, frankly. Remember when they had pursued him for more bread because they're their stomachs were hungry, or because they saw his signs and wanted healing. Isn't that basically the, the pursuit of health and wealth? As a false substitute religion, the health and wealth gospel is as old as the hills. Easy believism, consumers who don't really dwell and listen to what Jesus has to say, that's a problem for every generation. Look, Jesus is not looking for people who need a quick fix. Instead, he says, abide, remain, dwell in me, and I will abide in you. 
Take my words to heart. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Difficult truths, but you can hear them if you are of God. We need to take the bad news as medicine. Take the bad news as a precursor to the good news. It isn't, I promise, it isn't a cruel joke. The bad news, as Chuck, who was quoting Tim Keller, who was quoting, I don't know, Jack Miller or somebody, said last week, we are more sinful than we dared to believe. We are more sinful than we dared to believe. That's the first part of the equation, right? But at the same time, we are more accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. Sin isn't just something we do. It's who we are. But the good news is that Jesus is in the business of changing our identity. The good news is that we are granted sonship in God's family through the work of God's Son. We may have been slaves. We may have been sons of the devil. But in Christ, we are now God's children. You need the Son to change your identity. You need the Son to set you free. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead men are powerless. They can't do anything about their predicament. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive with Christ, and he's already seated us in the heavenly places. You need the Son to become God's child. The good news is that Jesus has taken on flesh. He's become your brother. He's died the death that was reserved for you. Good news is that he's not dead. He's not still in the grave. Because of his righteousness, God vindicated him. He raised him to life. And he's seated at God's right hand. He's interceding for you. And you, if you cling to him, if you abide in him, if you put your faith in him, if you follow him, God will consider you righteous and will raise you up on the last day as well. And God, if you have faith in Jesus, has adopted you into his family. You will no longer be an object of wrath, a slave, or Satan's son. Instead, you'll be a free son who lives forever. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But there's no other way. There's no other name given to us under heaven by which we can be saved. No other way to be God's son. In his gospel preface, John says this. He says, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. We've seen that play out here in John 8, haven't we? But to all who did receive him, who truly believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Born again children. Children who are born not of blood, right? Doesn't matter your ethnicity, your nationality. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You're granted the right to become God's child, not by the will of the flesh. Not by what you can do. But of God. God gets all the glory in our salvation. And let me encourage you with an application. The best application I can leave you with is the doxology of praise. You give him praise for your salvation this morning and throughout your life. The good news goes with the bad news. We're more sinful than we dared to believe, but we are more accepted in Christ than we dared hope. And the answer for us is Jesus. That's our new identity. Abide in him. Abide in his word. Let's pray together.